Wow, this is the first time up on our new stage. I thought we'd get more for six million bucks, but... <laughs> Actually, I have some really good news. Brian is letting me share this. I can honestly say we are one week closer to getting into that new building. <laughs> so, you heard it here first. I got to tell you, I, I've shared this a couple times, you know, 28 years now here, or, or being the pastor here at this church, um, without fail, every week God plays this little game with me. I'm always like, am I going in the right direction? And then somewhere around Thursday or Friday, he always gives me these little clues that I am. And sometimes they're little and sometimes they're amazing, but it always happens. And I always feel like encouraged. Okay, I'm on the right track. So I got to tell you what happened on Thursday. I'm up at Paul's Coffee in Louisville, and I'm writing a message on something that's called the Shema. If you don't know what that is, you'll find out in a little bit. And there's a song that goes with it. Shema Israel, Adonai Eloheinu, Adonai Echad. Um, and I'm working, and there's this lady sitting in front of me. We're outside on the patio if you've been there. And about five minutes later, this, this uh, family comes with their daughter, who I'm guessing is around 12, and she sits down with this lady, and I realize really quick that they're working on her bat mitzvah. Um, and this teacher is really creative. She's got like a card game, and every time the girl gets something right, they play for a couple minutes, and it's amazing. Okay, so she says, well, let's practice some of our Hebrew. What's the first song they practice? Shema. Now, let me tell you, I just turned 70 on May 1st. In all my 70 years, I've never been anywhere other than in a service somewhere and heard that song. So this is like one in a trillion type of things. And I'm going, okay, that's interesting. <laughs> it's pretty amazing. Um, don't you think? I mean, that was just in the weird category. But it was so fun. They, they were there for about an hour singing all the Hebrew prayers that I grew up on. And I was like, take me back. So those of you who have been on one of my tours to Israel, and if you don't know, there's one on the calendar now. And you can go to our website and register for it if you want. Um, but if you've been on one of my tours, you might recall that early in the morning, as we're just kind of flying into Tel Aviv, we usually get there about 9 in the morning or so. Some of my tours in the afternoon. Uh, but most of the time, they're in, they're in the morning. You'll see a group of Orthodox Jews gathering in the rear of the plane uh, for their morning prayers. And um, they're called Amidah prayers. Amidah literally just means standing. They're prayers that you say while standing up. And it requires at least 10 adults... If you're devout, it requires at least 10 adults to qualify for what's called a minyan, uh, an official quorum that's needed um, to fulfill certain religious obligations like the morning and evening Amidah prayers. Um, well, on one flight to Tel Aviv, Andrew and I were sitting towards the rear of the plane, and there wasn't enough Jews that morning to form a minyan, and so one of them comes up to my seat and says, are you Jewish? And I go, ethnic profiling? Is it my nose? I mean, what? 
And I said, well, of course I am. I mean, it's pretty likely that there's going to be a lot of Jewish people on a plane to Israel, right? Okay. So he says, will you join us? We need one more to, to, to make a minyan. And I said, now you have to remember, um, these are nine Orthodox Jews. They're dressed in traditional black clothing, the peyote sideburns, because they can't shave the sides of their heads, tefillin, those things that you wrap around your arm has a little box, and the wrap around your head has a little box, tallits around their shoulders. They're all carrying a siddur, which is a Jewish prayer book like this one. And um, then there was me. Dressed in my Western clothing and none of the extra Orthodox fashion accessories. But they didn't care. They just wanted me to, to complete the minyan. And can you picture that scene in your mind? It was quite an experience. And really, I hold it dear to this day. It was awesome. Well, in religious life, those Amidi prayers are required both morning and evening. And the centerpiece of those prayers is a section of scriptures in the book of Deuteronomy called the Shema, which means that for the first time in this prayer series, this is the third week, I actually have a prayer that we're pretty certain who the author is, because everyone who stood up here has said, well, they're not, they don't think that guy actually wrote it. Uh, these prayers come right from God himself. The Shema is a section about identity. That's what it is. First and foremost, they're about who God is, and then they're about who we are. In the scripture verses are found in the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 6, verses 4 through 9. So in the spirit of tradition, and since there's, yeah, there's over 10 people here, let's stand up and let's read this together, okay? Amidah style. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and all your strength. These commandments I give you today to be on your hearts. Impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home, when you walk along the road, when you lie down, and when you get up. Tie them as symbols on your hands. Bind them on your foreheads. Write them on the door frames of your houses and on your gates. Okay, sit down. Now, there's actually a couple more sections of scripture in this prayer that you'd find in a siddur, in a Jewish prayer book. <clears throat> and if you text Shema to Cornerstone's text number, it's 833-265, there it is, 5246, we'll send you this prayer in its, uh, in its entirety, along with some other resources that will help you uh, if you want to use this as your own prayer times over the next week or however long. And there's some other resources that will be there as well. But for the sake of time today, we're only going to look at this first section, and trust me, there's plenty of good stuff to occupy our time this morning. The first section talks about who God is. In Hebrew, verse 4 is, Shema Israel, Adonai Eloheinu, Adonai Echad. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Now, what does this verse tell us about God's identity that God is echad, that God is one. And this Hebrew word echad is just simply the number one in Hebrew. That's all it is, number one. 
And with the exception of Shabbat, which falls Friday night through Saturday night, um, that's the seventh day of the week in Israel, the names and days of the week in Israel are just numbered. For instance, the first day of the week is Yom Echad. Yom is the word day. Echad is the word one. So what, what does an Israeli call the first day of the week, which is Sunday? Day one. <laughs> day two is called Yom Sheni. Sheni is the number two. Day two, so on and so on, till you get to day six, and then all of a sudden, Shabbat. Because Shabbat is special. You can't just give it a number. Now, one is an interesting whole number. And it's unique from all the other whole numbers. Because it's the only whole number that when divided by another whole number, with the exception of dividing it by itself, it will never result in a whole number. For instance, the number two can be divided by two, and that'll result in the whole number one, right? The number three can be divided by 1.5 and result in the whole number two. And so it is with every other whole number up to infinity and beyond. And if you try to divide one by a different whole number, you'll always end up with a fraction that is less than one. You tracking with me? Okay, I'm not a mathematician, but this stuff's interesting. So even if you divide one by itself, one divided by one, what do you get? One. You still end up with one. And so um, that's why the number one is a very unique whole number from all the rest of the other whole numbers. And so to say that God is one means that he's unique. He alone is God. He has no equal. He doesn't share his divinity with anyone else. He's always existed. He always will exist. And he will never be replaced, ever. I mean, Mark Zuckerberg is the chairman of and CEO of Meta Platforms, formerly Facebook. And although he's a pretty unique human being, one day he's going to be replaced by someone else. God will never step down. He'll never be replaced as the CEO of the universe. God was and is and forever will be. First Chronicles 17.20 says, There's no one like you, Lord. There is no God but you. First Samuel 2.2 says, There's no one holy like the Lord. Now listen to this. No one holy like the Lord. We call this the prayers of the saints, right? That's what this series is, the prayers of the saints. I've got the only true saint today. We're all like small saints. God is the big one. You see how important this prayer is this week? I'm so honored to be able to teach on it. Uh, there's no one holy like the Lord. There's no one besides you. There is no rock like our God. There is no stability in this world except when your feet are planted on the rock. Now, historically, Judaism focuses on the oneness of God. If you don't know that, Judaism focuses on the oneness of God. It's a big deal in Judaism. While Christianity tends to focus on the threeness, I made up that word, the threeness of God. And Christianity's doctrine of the Trinity is something that Jewish people point to and say that Christians don't have a God who is one, they have a God who is three. 
And the Trinity is a huge stumbling block for the Jewish people, especially for those who recite the prayer every morning and evening that reminds themselves how God is indivisible and stands alone. So I want to address this issue, and I'm going to do this by showing how God clearly manifests himself as three separate entities in the Hebrew Scripture. I'm not going to use the New Testament. And so in a way, I'm respectfully addressing my Jewish brothers and sisters in hopes of clearing up this misunderstanding, which I'll never be able to do. It's been, you know, 2,000 years of misunderstanding. But I'm also addressing my Christian brothers and sisters as well in hopes that we might all elevate the oneness of God a little higher than his threeness. Mainly because God's oneness is elevated in the Bible. <clears throat> God's oneness is mentioned many times, at least a dozen times. You'll find a verse where it talks about God as one. You'll never find a verse anywhere that talks about the word the Trinity or triune or even the number three in reference to God. It's not even used once to describe God. So let's start by acknowledging that even though the Bible never uses these words, God is clearly presented in three forms in the Bible. You cannot get away from it. And let's look specifically at those three forms in the Hebrew Scriptures because that is where my Jewish brothers and sisters contest this triune, his triune nature. And we see two of these forms right in the opening verses of Genesis, if you remember it. Bereshit bara Elohim. In the beginning, God created what he created. Hashemayim Eretz, the heavens and the earth. And it goes on to say that now the earth was formless and empty, and darkness was hovering over the deep, and the spirit, God's ruach, the Ruach of God was hovering over the waters. In the beginning, God, that's the word Elohim. Elohim. So these two very distinct forms show up in many other places in the Bible as well. Here's an interesting one from Exodus 31, verse 2 through 3. It says, See, I have chosen Bezalel, son of Uri, the son of Ur, of the tribe of Judah, and I have filled him with the Spirit of God, with wisdom, with understanding, with knowledge, and with all kinds of skills. And so here in this passage, we find God, Elohim, putting his spirit, uh, putting, putting in this man something that he's calling his spirit. And we see the same impartation of God's spirit in several other passages in the Hebrew scriptures in people like Joseph and King Saul, just to name a couple. And so we clearly see some kind of a distinction between God the creator and God the spirit. And yet it's apparent that they are both God, or at the very least, in this case, a part of God dwelling in somebody. Now what about God showing up in a human form? Well, Genesis 3, after Adam and Eve, after Adam and Eve sinned, we're told that they actually heard, they heard, you gotta always listen, uh, you always gotta hear and listen and watch the words in scripture, God wastes nothing. They heard God walking around in the cool of the garden, right? Genesis 3.8, the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden, in the cool of the day. And because they had just sinned, and he's in close proximity to them now, it says they hid from the Lord among the trees in the garden. And so here 
we apparently have God in a human form, and he has enough physical weight to make sounds as he walks. So if we understand that God is corporal, that he, that he has no physical body, he certainly wouldn't be walking around, and there's no way to explain this away as just a metaphor. And so if you believe that Adam and Eve were two real human beings, I do, uh, who for a season lived in a place in Hebrew, it's called Gan Eden, the Garden of Eden, which most devout Jewish people do as well, then God taking on a human form is pretty tough to explain away in the first three chapters of the creation story. What form do you think God took when he wrestled with Jacob? Don't you imagine Brian Carlucci wrestling him? <laughs> I should have a wrestling illustration here today to honor that. Or when God, along with two other angels, appeared to Abraham, and they all end up eating, eating lunch together. God eats? Well, not in his creator form. Genesis 18.25 says, Abraham looked up and he saw three men standing nearby. When he saw them, he hurried from the entrance of his tent to meet them and bowed low to the ground. He said, if I have found favor in your eyes, my Lord, do not pass your servant by. Let a little water be brought and then you may all wash your feet. They have feet and rest under his tree. Let me get you something to eat so you can be refreshed and then go on your way now that you have come to your servant. And these three visitors reply, we will do as you say. And so the context here makes, it, makes this passage, makes it, makes it almost impossible that the person talking to Abraham is not a representative of God, but is in fact God himself in human form. By the way, if you want to read an excellent book on this, there's a book called um, Who Had Lunch with Abraham? <laughs> and it's written by Asher and Trotter. Um, Asher and Trotter is, is a Jewish man who met Jesus in the 60s when that first wave uh, in the Jesus movement captured the hearts of hundreds and hundreds of Jewish people. A lot of those, those Jews, now Messianic Jews, moved to Israel when it was easier to do that. It's not that easy to do that. I couldn't do that right now. Uh, I could not become a citizen. So he's an uh, Israeli citizen. Started a congregation there called Ahavat Yeshua, the love of, of Jesus. And uh, he's just a fiery, amazing teacher. Um, and he wrote this book uh, kind of as an apologetic to, um, to, to defending um, the appearances, the three appearance, the form appearance of God in the Tanakh, in the Hebrew scriptures. I, it's, you should get it. You can get it on Amazon.com. Just Google that name in their search engine, and uh, you can get it in Kindle or in paperback. But let, let's dive into this mystery a little deeper, okay, by looking at what I believe is the best way to describe uh, God's triune nature. Most of you have heard uh, this particular one, but there are a few words in Hebrew I'm going to try and make this super interesting for you. I'm sure you're going to hear something, hopefully, that maybe you haven't heard before. There are a few words in Hebrew that can only be found in the plural form. And they all 
are worth studying because they are amazing. Every one of them. There's only like four or five of them. And one of those words is the word panim. Like my mother, you know, in Yiddish would say, oh, you have such a cute punim. Panim is the word face, right? Jewish mothers do that. They grab your cheek. You've got such a cute punim. And only your mother would do that. And um, anytime you hear the word im, like Elohim, Elohim, you hear that sound at the end of a Hebrew word, that's like adding an S in English. It becomes a plural form. Um, and that's, it's pretty interesting. I don't know. I mean, if you, if you just dig into these words, you're going to have a good time. The singular form for face, pan, it just doesn't exist. I mean, I said it, but it doesn't exist. Only the plural form, panim. And scholars, you know, there's lots of speculation. Um, God didn't give us any answers about why, why he created Hebrew like that. But scholars speculate that the reason for this is that each human face is so unique, so complex, so mysterious, so sacred, that you can only think of it in the plural sense. The scriptures tell us that Moses was the only human being that was able to see God. How did he see him? Panim al panim, face to face. One unique, complex, mysterious, sacred human face looking at another complex, mysterious, sacred, divine face. And don't miss that this implies that God is manifesting himself with a face during this meeting. And if you were to read this literally, Moses met with God faces to faces. I mean, that's how it literally, the word Elohim literally translates gods. It's one of the most common names for God, Elohim. It's plural. Isn't that interesting? That's a whole other message. <clears throat> Another one of these plural words, Hebrew words, is maim, maim which is the word for water. It literally translates waters, but nobody translates that. It's a plural word translated singularly, just like face. And even though today, you know, thanks to science, we can reduce water down to a single molecule in a lab, try, next time you're near a body of water, try grabbing a handful and see if you can get it down to a molecule. You can't. It's just, there's just no way to do that. Water is also very unique and complex and mysterious and sacred. And it can be found in three different forms, right? We know this. We, solid, liquid, and gas. And yet, it retains its identical chemical composition. All three of these forms are the compound H2O. One atom of hydrogen, two atoms of oxygen. Yet, all three of these forms are not, um, they're not only very unique from each other, they play different roles in the environment. Just to name a few, in liquid form, H2O supplies all the necessary um, chemicals for life to flourish. And you can water ski on it. In a frozen form of ice, H2 preserves our water supply through the hot seasons. If, if, those, if we didn't have those glaciers that you look at in those 14 years, we wouldn't have water supply. Pretty nice idea, huh? 
and you put them up high enough so they don't melt completely. Well, sometimes they do, but... And, and you can um, ski or snowboard on it. Or you can take little chunks of it and put it in your drink and keep it cold. In gas form, it creates um, steam, right? And that's, we can get energy from steam. And we can sanitize things with steam. You'll be severely burned if you try to recreate on steam. Recreate. But despite these really different forms and roles from each other, at the end of the day, they are still only one compound, H2O. Three forms, one compound. That's how it is with, with the triune God. He is creator. He's spirit and dweller. He's a human visitor. Three separate entities with three very unique forms and functions. But at the end of the day, God is one. And what makes our water analogy the best, in my humble opinion, the best analogy to use to describe the triune nature of God is this. Water is vital to human flourishing. Because without water, there is no human flourishing. There's no organic any flourishing. And so it is with God. God is vital to human flourishing. Without God, there's no real human flourishing. And this is why... This, this, this should light up for you, John 7, 38, when Jesus said, whoever believes in me, as the scriptures has said, rivers of living water will flow from them. These two words, living water, are grouped together three times in the Hebrew scripture. Here's one of them. Jeremiah 2.13, my people have committed two sins. They have forsaken me, the spring of living water, and have dug their own cisterns, broken cisterns that cannot hold water. This passage makes a very simple point. In a metaphorical and a metaphysical sense, instead of quenching man's deepest human thirst with living water, the people in this passage were drinking from sources that cannot quench human thirst. They're chasing after empty sources of living water. Those two words, living water, are pronounced maim, that's the word for water, chaim. In Hebrew, chaim, if I say lechaim, what am I saying? To life, okay? Chaim is another one of those only plural forms because life is also unique and complex and mysterious and sacred. And when you join those plural forms together, they end up being a super mega life-giving human flourishing recipe. Maim Chaim, living water. By the way, maybe you're familiar with a mikvah. mikvah. That's where our baptisms come from, from a mikvah. Remember when Jesus went, or when the men came to John the Baptist to be baptized in the Jordan River? That was the reason why they never said baptism. What the heck is that? Is that some newfangled thing? No, it wasn't. The, the Jordan River is, is qualifies as a mikvah. 
A mikvah is a place where you go and immerse yourself. There's lots of different things you would do for. And there's one requirement. It has to be maim chaim. It has to be living water. It has to have a source in and a source out. That water has to be alive. When there's no source in or there's no source out, it becomes stagnant and polluted. So this is a big deal in Jewish world. Maim chaim is a big deal. Living water is a big deal. When Jesus spoke to the crowd of Jews and said, if you believe in me, streams of living water, mine chaim, will flow from you. This is a big deal. There's life in and there's life out. And Jesus freely offers this in abundance. How? When we put our faith in him. And maybe you're here today because you are spiritually dehydrated. Forty years ago, I walked into a church that way. If so, Jesus is offering you a fire hose of mine chayim to drink from. Now, I mean right now, you only have to turn to him in faith. And it's so easy. We complicate it so much. It's so easy. There's no contracts. There's no money to give. You don't have to say it in some mechanical form. You just say, wow. I don't know why, but right in this moment, I'm ready to believe you are who you say you are. I need my thirst quenched. And you can do this right now in your seat. Just say, Lord, Jesus, Yeshua, my Messiah, I believe in you. Something's going on in my heart today. I need water in and I need water out. And so I trust in you. And that's it. And watch your life change when you say a prayer like that. Shema Israel, Adonai Eloheinu, Adonai Ogad, Echad. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord, he's one. And he's one for us. Okay, let's quickly look at the second part of this passage, which deals with who we are. And the next uh, four verses in this passage break down our identity into two parts. First, about who we are on the inside, and then who we are on the outside. First, our internal identity from verses 5-6. And a good way of thinking this is to say, now that we know who God is, then this is who we are. Okay, so this follows. You can't have the first part without the second part. And it says this. Because of who God is, we should love the Lord our God with all of our heart and all of our soul and all of our strength. These commandments I give you today are to be on your hearts. Everything here are, is internal, right? And this passage is simply saying, I'm just going to, you know, you, we can spend like weeks on this, but I just want to boil it down to one simple concept, that we should love God with, it's saying we should love God with every part of our being, like with everything we've got. That's what it's saying. It doesn't mean that we won't have doubts or, or questions that need to be resolved. I mean, you know, 40 years into this, I still have all that stuff. I don't think they'll ever get completely answered this side of heaven. My list just grows longer as the years go on. It simply means that since we're convinced about who God is, 
We are now committed to walk down a path to put our entire being under his loving and gracious authority. That's what it means. It's like saying, God, because you're number one over the universe, I'm going to allow you to be number one over my universe, over me. It also doesn't mean that this magically happens perfectly, right? Once we make that decision, because making God number one in our lives is a lifelong process. A good, good way to think about this is to imagine you know, your, your, your fingers, your hands and your fingers gripping tightly on to an object like we tend to do to things here on earth, right? We just grip things, whether it's our kids or our spouse or our possessions or our jobs or, you know, our ability to, to compete in sports. I mean, we just tend to grip really tight, like that's my identity. That's where I find my significance. But then one at a time, typically very slowly, God begins to pry our fingers away from those things as we begin to trust him more and more with our lives. I want to share a poem that I read a few times here. It's just meant a lot to me over the decades here. And I want, um, it won't be on the screen. I'd like you to just close your eyes when I read it, if you don't mind. You don't have to, but just listen with your whole being. One by one, God took them from me. All the things I valued most. Until I was empty-handed, every glittering toy was lost. And I walked earth's highways, grieving in my rags and poverty, till I heard his voice inviting, lift your empty hands to me. So I held my hands towards heaven, and he filled them with a store of his own transcendent riches till they could contain no more. And at last I comprehended with my mind so dull that God could not pour his riches into hands already full. Loving God with everything we've got. Listen to this. Loving God with everything we've got is an inside job. It happens from the inside. As it's a lifelong process as God begins to work in our lives in such a way to pry our fingers off those things that have meant so much to us, but they don't truly quench our thirst. And once God begins to work in the inside, that begins to transform what it looks like on the outside of us. Verse 7 through 9 says this. Impress them on your children. I just want to say one thing about this before I move on. 
because I'm not going to really look at this. I'm not going to dive in and parse this all out. Impress is the word like to sharpen a stone, like with, with a wedding, sharpen a sword or a knife with a wedding stone. That's where we get the word wet your appetite, W-H-E-T. <clears throat> That Jewish woman, I don't know why I'm so emotional this morning, but I am, teaching this 13, 12-year-old girl, preparing her for her bat mitzvah, was wetting her appetite for God. If you have never been in our children's ministry, and I give you all permission to go past our security and just go into our children's ministry... Do not tell Carrie that I said that. (laughs) We make it super fun and creative to learn about God here. We don't compromise what they learn. They learn stuff just as deep as you're learning here. I'm amazed. But if you ever get a chance, just go look at the creativity as they whet the appetite of these kids. It's amazing. Impress them on your children. This is going to change you from the outside because you're going to start doing things like this, right? Talk about them. He's talking about the commandments, the, really the word of God. When you sit at home and when you walk along the road, when you lie down and when you get up, tie them as symbols on your hands and bind them on your foreheads. Write them on the door frames of your house and on your gates, these are all external things that begin to manifest on the outside of us from the transformation that's taking place on the inside. The goal here is no dualism, right? No dualism in our lives when it comes to faith. What's happening on the inside should sync up with what's happening on the outside. That's what we're after constantly is to sync up those two. It's the hardest thing to do, but well worth it. I want to show you a couple of graphics. Can we get the, to the next slide? Uh, oh, we didn't put those together. So here's one. You all know what that is. It's a mezuzah. If you don't know, maybe you've seen it on the home of a Jewish person. Um, and they put them on their doorposts. Did, we just read something about that. Right? Write them on your doorposts. Here's one that I have. And if you don't know... Now you know. If you don't know, it goes up on your door like this and you stick it. I'm actually going to convince Brian to put one on our door frame here and in our new building. But there are scrolls inside of mezuzahs. You know what the scroll is? Can you take a guess? The Shema. The Shema. Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 9. In Hebrew. Now this is not a kosher Shema or mezuzah. A kosher mezuzah. The rabbi would have made sure that this is printed just perfectly and blessed it, right? So it's not kosher. It's actually a messianic one. It's got the ancient symbol of the fish. Um, It's pretty cool. If you want to know how to get this, you can get it off Amazon. (laughs) All right, next one. These are the articles of clothing I was talking about earlier. You see the wrappings around their arms, and then he's got a little box on that. Guess what's in that box? The Shema. Tie them on your, your um, forehands, right? On your arms. 
And then he's got one on his head. You see the box sticking out of his head? It looks like he's, you know, a scientist or something. Guess what's in that box? The Shema. And he's wearing a tallit, but the tallit is just a modern invention. It's not an invention. It was, um, you know, as Jews have been persecuted over the, the centuries, mostly by Christians, sadly, um, it became unsafe to wear the zitziot, the little strings that come out in the, in the Torah. The men are commanded to wear four. We've kind of covered that before. So they, they, in, they made these tallits, and on the tallits, you'll see that it's got four corners, and, it's got, and those would be used in, only in worship services when they're out in public. Not every Jew. There are a lot of Orthodox Jews would be glad to be persecuted and martyred for following God. But not everybody felt that way, and so the tallit has become kind of a, a common garment or accessory. And then he's got a yarmulke on his head. Um, what else does he have on? He, I don't, can't see if he's got the payout or not. You know, what are all these things? You know, a lot of people, honestly, there's some people who see this religious garb as overly pretentious, legalistic, super religious. And they're t- turned off by it. And here's what I can tell you about all that stuff. Leave that up on the screen, if you, if you would. Every one of these outward articles are intended to be constant reminders of who they are on the inside and who they put first in their life. That's what they are. First and foremost, they're not out there to impress you. Trust me. They could care less if you agree with that or not. That's for them. That's how they worship God. That's how they remind themselves day in and day out is I follow the God who is one. The only true God. The God who alone is God. The God who has no rival, has no equal. There's only one true source of life and I want to remind myself of that constantly. That's what that's all about. And although I'm not advocating that we should be wearing any of this garb, so don't hear me say that. You don't see me wearing any of that. I will end with a question, okay? And here's the question. What are the outside markers in your life that remind you of your inward commitment to God? To love him with all of your heart, soul, and strength. What do you have? I mean, you know, some people wear a cross or a star of David, hang a scripture on the wall, put a picture of Jesus on the wall. Um, there's an infinite number of ways to do this. I'm sure you can think of some ways to do this in your own life. And it's not a right or wrong thing. It's really what can you have in your life that you can see constantly that reminds you of the commitment you made to God to live in a way that's consistent with following Yeshua, with following Jesus. I'm telling you, it's super confusing in the world today. People, and and, and honestly, a lot of Christians are way off track today. They think they're doing what Jesus is doing, but they're not. Promoting hatred and division and things like that. That's not about Jesus. 
But I want to tell you what helps me to remember. Because I don't have any of that stuff. I can't even wear jewelry. It just, I don't know, I have this thing. It just, I don't have rings. Um, but I have 48 years of faithful marriage. How about that? That's a nice thing to wear. And I can't wear, I mean, if I do wear something around my neck, I can only do it for a while. I just, I don't know, I just get kind of creepy feelings about it. I feel like claustrophobic over it. Welcome to my world. And um, let me see, how, how are we doing time-wise here? What time is it? Oh, it's late. Time flies when you're having fun. <laughs> Hasn't been boring, though, has it? Most of you know that I've invested the last 15 years of my life into seeing history and God's story in the Bible as a narrative, as a beautiful story. Not two stories, not a, not a Jewish story that morphed into a Christian story, but one seamless, beautiful love story from beginning to end. And once I started doing that, it brought life to me that I hadn't had before. And particularly, particularly because it made sense to some really confusing stories in the Bible, you know. But if you see that everything about the Bible, everything about history, everything that's challenging, everything that's great, is just what God uses to bring his story down. Because eventually, you know, the story is going to end. Well, I don't say it ends. It's going to have a new beginning. And what reminds me of who I am, outside, inside, and who God is, is every morning I get up and I say, God, what's the story going to look like today? What are we going to do? It's kind of like John 5, 19. That's kind of my life verse. Jesus says, I don't do anything on my own. I only see what I do what I see my Father doing. And it's not quite like that because I imagine I am part of an incredible epic tell. And it doesn't matter who you are, what gender you are, how tall or how short you are. I mean, nothing matters. You, we all have a role in this incredible story. And I try, you know, I, I try to push through my day, reminding myself, particularly when I bump into something difficult or I read another headline or I see the stocks, you know, slipping away. This is all part of the story. And God wants to use me today, this moment, like right now, as he wants to use you. And I think if you can shift your thinking that you have an important role to play and forget about the fact, well, but I don't know what to do in my role. You don't have to know anything, right? You just have to be aware that you're stuck in a story. And so when things come at you, somebody comes into your life, this is where you rally. And I hope you realize that you are stuck in a story. Okay, that's all I have for today. <laughs> I actually have more, but I can't go on. Brian's standing at the door. Look. He's writing my review right now. <laughs> and worship team, why don't you come up?
I just want to sing for you one more time the Shema. A lot of you know it. Sing it with me if you do. Shema Israel, Adonai Eloheinu, Adonai Echad. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Lord, thank you for the revelation about yourself, Lord. And I pray, Father, that you would put it into us, Lord. I mean, you know, we can't love you with all of our being unless you do some work in us, God, to bring us there. And so we just want to be a people who submit to your loving and gracious authority in our lives. Help us to embrace the things that entered into our lives, even the painful ones that we it's so hard for us, Lord. There's so much pain. I'm not minimizing it at all, Lord. I just, I, I just pray that what we can embrace, Lord, is to know that you are a God that has a plan, that wrote a story in eternity past, God. And so far, it's just all played out the way you've written it. We trust it'll continue to play out that way. Help us to see that we are key players in this epic tale that you've written. Help us to let go, to release our grip off those things in this world that we're holding so tightly, those things that just tend to crumble. Anyways, and tap into the Maim Chaim, the living water. Fresh water in, fresh water out. And I pray this. In the match, matchless name of Jesus, our Messiah. Amen.